while women who write take flight. As women who write, we recognize the importance of supporting one another because together we are stronger. Our goal is to provide this support through discussions about developing character, setting, plot, and dialogue. We will include interviews, panel discussions, and informal chats. Our team of Wild Women includes Gabby Anderson, author of South of Happily, a novel that started as a love letter to a lost parent and turned into a story about staying sane when life tries to shove us to the business end of a meat grinder. She is currently writing the second book in this series, North of Happily. Kim Connery, author of the sci-fi romance Stealing Aries and the memoir, You're Not a Murderer, You Just Have OCD. She also writes a blog to bring awareness to OCD at harmocdkimconnery.com. April Dilbeck, author of A Sacred Thing, a detective story about the theft of an African shaman's mask that leads the readers from the Congo to the elite world of New York art dealers and collectors. Elizabeth Jones, author of literary fiction and our resident MFA in creative writing. And Kathy Nichols, author of The Sometimes Sister, a psychological thriller that explores the bonds of sisterhood and life after loss. Our flight is organic and our journey is ongoing. We invite you to join us along the way. Valerie Neiman is the award-winning author of five novels, In the Lonely Backwater, a YA crossover thriller in the Southern Gothic tradition is now available. And we just loved it. And we cannot wait to get into it with her because we just had such a great time reading it. Her other novels are To the Bones, a cross-genre mystery first published in 2019. Kirk has said it's evocative, intelligent prose, conjures an anxious mood and strong sense of place while spotlighting the societal and environmental devastation wrought by the coal mining industry. And by the way, that one's available in the audiobook version now. And also Blood Clay is another of her novels of the New South. And it was honored with the Eric Hoffer Prize in general fiction. She also has Survivors, a novel about the Rust Belt of the 1970s. And her first book is Nina Gathering. It is a classic in the post-apocalyptic genre. She also has three poetry collections, Leopard Lady, A Life in Verse, Hotel Worthy, and Wake, 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 and a collection of short stories, Fidelities. She was also nominated for the Pushcart Prize and many other awards. She's a former professor and journalist. She now teaches creative writing at conferences and venues such as the John C. Campbell Folk School. Welcome, Valerie. Great to be here. Kathy wanted to talk to you about point of view. And we noticed that Maggie's thoughts are in first person. And we talk about point of view on our podcast and, and the way we write our different stories. And Kathy had some thoughts on that. Before I start, though, I just am going to have to say, wow, because I love how you uh, are very confident in um, tackling a wide variety of genres. And I also wanted to say that you can really or tell your poetic background in this novel with your descriptions, not just of the setting, but I think a lot of the characters, your descriptions are really um, kind of dead on. And you use, you know, poetry is 
obviously shorter. And I think the way you describe some of the things, it just grabs you right away and you kind of know it. Like the way their, their nicknames in the group, you know, that those nicknames reveal things they don't want revealed, of course, but usually nicknames do that. So, but yes, I was fascinated with um, Maggie and her and the first person point of view. It was really kind of a brave thing to do in, in that book because Maggie, she's, we, we're on her side, but she can be a difficult character to totally empathize with. And, and we can sympathize with her, I think, all the time, but her background is difficult and her life is so difficult. It's challenging, but I don't really think you could have told it from anyone else's viewpoint. It, you know, it has to be Maggie. So is, did you ever think of telling it in a different way or is first person kind of your um, go-to uh, is there was there a reason other than that it's just such a personal story of Maggie's? Well, I've written in in third person and first person, so I, I go back and forth depending on the the novel. But her voice was so strong; it just started with I, I started writing the first chapter, and as soon as she started talking, it was there was no question. I couldn't do anything else because you know the first line came and it was like ah. Okay, and I knew I was in for a ride. <laughs> did did you get an inspiration from a conglomeration of people you had known, of anybody specific, yourself? Combined? I always find that regardless of the point of view, the narrator slips a lot of his or her own life in, into the book, into the story. And I talked, I taught high school and a little bit of college, and I always said, I think that fiction can reveal more about the author sometimes than a memoir even, because if you're paying attention, you're gonna pick up in the author's voice, you're gonna pick up the author's experience too. So how did, was, was she, did she just come to you and say, I'm going to be Maggie? Uh, there were different threads that came together. This book was very slow in getting going. In fact, I, I wrote it, thought I had finished it by 2012, and was marketing it and uh, doing revisions as things came up. And I wrote another whole novel. I wrote To the Bones and published it in that period before finally the book was really, really finished and found a home. So I, it had threads. Uh, Maggie is, there's a lot of me and Maggie. I was that uh, solitary girl out wandering in the woods. I've always been a lone hiker. I, I I enjoy the solitude of the forest. So that's definitely me. And I also had some other threads. I, I learned to sail rather late in life and was sailing at a lake in North Carolina. And so that whole marina environment was just everywhere around me and I was just picking it up and soaking it in. And I also had um, this encounter with Linnaeus which came by way of Fred Chappell. I read one of his books of short stories and there's a story in there about Linnaeus. And later I saw a puppet show made out of, an erotic puppet show made out of that story. Uh, trust me, it was amazing. And so that was kind of in my mind. And I was, I, I am myself also someone who does a lot of botanizing and looking at creatures. And so all of those things were kind of floating around. And then I was moving. I moved three times, four times in this period. And I found my high school yearbook for my senior year. And there was uh, an inscription uh, 
from a girl that I really don't remember well. And it was about the argument and that she hoped everything could be cleared up. I have no idea what the argument was. It's gone. And that just started working and it started drawing these threads together, this idea of those passionate disagreements that you have when you're that age that are just, you know, world shattering. And so from there, all of that kind of coalesced. That's so interesting because you don't ever know if you reconciled it, um, if it just disappeared, if she, I always think that the person who's writing those sorts of things is usually the person who did something uh, to someone else. So you must have either forgotten or forgiven, or if you didn't forgive, if you forgot, I guess this is good. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, I, I, the solitary nature of the thing and having the three oddball close friends and then losing them that way, I thought was especially um, sad and painful. And I, and I got it. And I, remember, I know in your questions, which kind of goes to Maggie's, we talk about that Maggie, you talk about how Maggie is older than her years, but she's also pretty naive about some things. Um, that I think definitely made it more important to come from her point of view rather than have people making comments. Although you did have some of the side characters, you know, give her some looks like, really, you know, you're just not getting it. But she also knew things that they were not in any way ready to get as well. So that was pretty fascinating. Um, I know Kim, I write almost always in first person. I wrote one, I have written one book in third person with different um, with switching kind of points of view I thought that was really hard and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that one I did write one completely in third person but went back and and changed it so that I could get into the characters heads but I think and and while I'm not necessarily the care the main character obviously a lot of myself comes out in that and it was just just somehow easier for me to do I I, I can't I can't detach myself from it and I think that uh, because you are an observer of people and of plants and animals and um, that categorization sort of thing I think that might make you good at but that's why you're good at both that you're able to to step in and step out and I really like that I know you put Kim what about you well I really liked that you know her observations and you're talking about this in in your questions that you often use um was maggie's uncertainty about her sexuality and how her observations with nature and reproduction was helping her understand that and, and at least give her a, a, a way to think about that and and it was all sort of woven together. That thread was sort of woven through. And what I liked about that and what stood out for me at least, and I'm sure people see different things in a story when, when they read it, but what I thought was so wonderful about using nature in that way and her observations about nature and how they reproduce and how their sexuality works is it just simply is. Nature's not conflicted about it. Nature's not, you know, having all these issues with it, all tangled up about it. And they're not looking at their peers, you know, saying, well, what are you doing? Well, that's weird. You know, they, they just, 
they they are what they are and that you know and we we complicate it so much and and so unaccepting and it gets in our head and creates so much mental dysfunction so i loved that the thread of you know nature and how nature reproduces and and nature's sexuality it was it was in there because it was this sharp contrast to how confusing it is for human beings and and i just love that and and what was your what made you thread that in? And, and, and at what point did you decide, hey, this is going to be a great contrast to human sexuality and, and a way of looking at it? And, you know, what, what, at what point did you just decide to use that? Ah, that's a great question. Uh, I think, as, as you noted earlier, Maggie is older than her years, but also younger. She's really, really smart and she knows it. But she's also really naive because she's just been sheltered in this sort of this backwater. She she and and she's solitary, so she doesn't know how to work with people very well and doesn't understand an awful lot of things. Even though she knows a lot, she may not understand a lot, and so she's immersed in nature. Uh, Kirkus reviews said that the the prose drips with sexuality, and it does because when you're 15, 16, 17, depending on you know, how, how you develop, everything, you know, you're trying to figure out the whole world and you're trying to figure out your body and you're trying to figure out other people and everything is so intense. So she looks at birds and she looks at tadpoles and she looks at all of these things around her and she, she ponders on them and she relates them to, to her life. And yes, she's got a very sexual overtones to everything because she's really fascinated with what's going on and with herself and with others. And so that's the lens that she's looking through. Well, I thought it was just wonderful because nature just doesn't have that dysfunction and we could really learn something from that. You know, they're just, they are what they are. And it's the way we judge ourselves and others that creates the dysfunction. And I thought it was just beautiful to just take a look at nature and, and how they're doing things. and. One of your other discussion questions that I that I really liked was um, discuss Maggie and Nat as non-gender performing teenagers. That's the first thing that appealed to me because um, Maggie, of course, is still figuring out exactly what she is. But I have a, a daughter who's non-binary, and you know, to me, that was such a courageous thing for her to just sit with that and think about that, and you know, decide, you know, well, really, what am I? And, and to, at such a young age to think about it. And, and Maggie had to think about it and draw her own conclusions and nature helped her do that. But I just applaud you for allowing your character to go through that and to explore that and that you had an ace character as well, asexual. You know, that was just wonderful. You just don't see that enough. And I would just be clapping if I didn't think it would mess up our recording <laughs> because I just appreciated that so much, you know, because there's just so much dysfunction, mental dysfunction, depression, and everything that just tears its way through people mentally, their families. And because we don't talk about it enough we don't work through it and you gave us this 
wonderful gift of being able to see Maggie work her way through it. You gave us this space to see her explore that. And I just really applaud that. And I just applaud that there was this ace character there and just, and showing the conflict. And I don't want to say the character's name because I don't want to give a spoiler, but the conflict with this character's um, parents as well. And this character feeling like they, they couldn't tell their parents, you know, what they were. Um, I, I just, Again, I just applaud you for, for going there and just for looking into that. And um, it, was, it was really wonderful. And I think the dysfunction comes because we don't explore that. We don't unravel it. We don't take an honest look at it. And you went there and you did it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I think Maggie is really fascinated with the natural world in that you have all of these different kinds of animals and plants that can change gender. They can be male, they can be female, they can be both. And she's fascinated by that because I think she's torn between being traditionally, you know, traditional cisgender, or maybe she's gay, but she doesn't know. And then her friend is, is asexual. And that's something that's entirely puzzling to her and trying to figure that out. So she's, she's working in an environment and an environment that often is really judgmental. Uh, both Sharice and Nat's families are just have this incredible, you know, this is what's allowed. And then for Maggie herself, her mother tries really, really hard to force her into the format of a traditional female. And she just can't do it and won't do it. But there's a lot of people, a lot of pressure on these kids to make them conform. So much. I I don't want to say too much. My daughter always says I give away too much and be really careful. But um, the the I'm just going to say his name. It's okay to do that. But Fletcher and her um, the whole Fletcher affair was fascinating because I think we kind of find out she picked up some hints about that from observation of her own parents, which was uh, very interesting and very um, kind of open, like uh, uh, that that probably would bump a lot of people, you know, because it was, it was sort of startling, but it made perfect sense. And it also, I think, helped Maggie become someone who could distance herself, who could be an observer. But then when she gets into her relationship with that character, she is not distant at all. She is into it so much so that she thinks she sees the guy. And, you know, it just was, uh, that was fascinating to me. I thought that was an interesting combination of being naive and too old for yourself because she had a lot of information that girls her age wouldn't really have, but she didn't really know quite what to do with it, just even girls younger than she was. And I, I really think that's important to look at too, because sometimes I think we look at these teenagers and think, boy, they have, they really know what's going on. They're so different than what we were. But but no, that they are just as confused um, as we probably were. And they're they they have more information, but they don't have much different processing skills. I mean, how could they? It's a biological thing. Was that something you thought about when you created that part of the book or was, were you just, that just seemed to me like you just kind of got into it and it was like, just took off on its own. It kind of took off, but I think what Maggie has is 
uncomfortable awareness because of the close quarters with her parents that she saw things when she was younger that she didn't understand what was going on at all. And then later she does. And so of course that would be really embarrassing to a kid. And then she's got access because she cleans the boats in the marina and people leave their, their porn and stuff laying around. So she's got access to stuff. She's looking at this stuff without any real framework to put it in. It's not like you can go home and ask dad, well, I read this thing, you know? Uh, no, you can't. So she's just, you know, sucking all this stuff in without a, a really good framework to, to work with it. I, I know some friends and I once when I was in junior high, what it was then, we got into a, a stash of her brother's magazines. And I wish we had recorded our speculations because they would be hilarious. Uh, as but we were we were very puzzled mostly grossed out but but puzzled and then then we I could tell we were gradually each of us sort of putting it together so it uh, you know that, that's what I'm, I say I don't think those sorts of things have changed that much I think that is a part of our biology that we deal with what we can deal with and then it comes to us as necessary or it doesn't come to us. I think that that can be puzzling and people are judgmental about those of us who approach things from a different angle. And I don't, now I was asking you earlier when we were just chatting, uh, you kind of gave, gave me the main clue. You were at a, a community like this when you were younger. So you, you observed the land and the people and the boat, the boat culture, if you'd call it that, and the, the tears of the boat culture, the raw and raw, rowdy parties, and then the sophisticated ones that were even rawer and rowdier probably than the ones that she saw on land. Obviously, nature's important to you. In your writings, do you include that importance or does that importance reflect throughout all your novels? Was this the most reflective uh, I love that. I've got to look at Leopard Lady. That is, that one is poetry, a poet, yes. poetic narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that just looks fascinating to me. And it seems like it might do some other kind of interesting things with nature and people. But just what, what do you, what about nature for you in, in different parts of the country? Well, I grew up in Western New York State and we lived out in the country and farm country, dairy country. And I was an only child until I was seven. And so I just wandered out in the woods by myself. My mother would come to the back porch and, you know, yell my name and I would be very disgusted and say, I'm all right. I can remember very clearly doing that because I'd be down observing things and damming up the stream and, you know, slogging around in all sorts of ways. Uh, I was a real tomboy, you know, right up through high school, really my daddy's girl fishing and, you know, and, boating and doing things. Um, but I was always in, in nature. I, I, I really wasn't interested at all. When my sister came along, it's sort of like, eh, yeah, you know. Uh, I never did the babysitting or babies or anything. I just had no interest. So my world was nature. And I would, you know, try to identify things. I didn't have the the wonderful tools we have today of having the internet where you can go and take a picture of it and find it. But I had my, you know, Peterson's bird guide and my other, my little golden guides before that. And so I would look things up and try to figure out what it was. And, and, and uh, that was really important to me because I think like Maggie, I was trying to make sense of the world, make the world work. And I, she's, she's much more troubled. I was not, I did not have a dysfunctional family, but 
her discovery of Linnaeus and the whole idea of taxonomy that you can make the world make sense by identifying it very carefully and naming it. And she picks that up and that's what she does. As you say in the marina, she's got everything broken down uh, into categories. It's a kind of control. She can, she can control that much. And, and do you think, I thought Detective Van was a really interesting character and hearing you talk uh, about the control and whatever, I, I almost got the feeling that Maggie came to admire him in a similar way that she did uh, Linnaeus because he was uh, trying to make order out of a chaotic situation. And even though she knew he seemed to care about her, but he was looking for the truth. I think she admired that he was looking for the truth. And um, that that their relationship was so interesting to me because I, I don't know what, I didn't ever completely understand what he thought about her. And I don't think we're supposed to, but uh, what, what is the ambiguity there to make us uh, just keep thinking about it? Or were you ambiguous about it? How did you feel? Well, uh, Drexel Van Ambivalent. is dear, dear <laughs> my heart as well. Uh, I didn't know he was going to be that important. This neither. <laughs> was not, I didn't sit down, have a big outline and everything in place. I, I had her voice starting and I knew that there was going to be a dead girl and that Maggie was going to be involved. But when he showed up at the school and started interviewing her right away, he just popped. He was just like, oh, okay. And then from there on, it was very much between the two of them with, you know, they're both observers. They're both investigators. They're both paying attention to the world and they both have secrets. She's keeping her secrets. And of course, he's a, a police investigator, so he's not telling what he knows. And, and so there's this sparring back and forth and, and that combination of uh, respect and distrust and admiration and even a little love in there that, you know, between these two characters that I, I really didn't know that was going to happen. And that's the wonderful thing in writing is that characters build out of your head, out of the past. I, I was a police reporter. I knew a lot of detectives. And there were different ones who went into this, but one in particular that was kind of a model for his way of doing, his very patient and low-key kind of way. This isn't a guy who runs around, you know, flashing a gun and, you know, like that. He's very low-key. And, and so he, that was a lot of what went into this character. And one of your questions is, uh, would we like to read a sequel? And I was thinking sort of, but I would love it if you took him and Maggie can be in it in some way, but I would love to see him in action again, not necessarily like a detective series because he doesn't fit that mold, but uh, some another case in which maybe Maggie comes to mind and maybe they even you know interact with each other again because because Maggie becomes a very um, interesting character at the end. And I'm not gonna say much more about that, but it, it leaves us with lots more questions than answers. But, it, but, and, but I'm gonna say right away, it is not one of those books that irritates you with that. It's not like, it's not like, why did she not, why did she just stop? It's not like that at all. They're the kind of questions that you couldn't possibly know the answers to because we, Maggie's story ends at that point. Her life doesn't end, her story ends. 
So um, I, I just thought if, if, if I were looking for something, I'd love to see more of Detective Ban, um, if, if you get an idea for it. <laughs> well, that's really nice to know. That makes me very happy because, yeah, I liked him a lot. And I could see him going on getting, I, I've toyed with a sequel that he would, you know, move into a different kind of job. I'm thinking State Bureau of Investigation. He moves up, gets out of this backwater for him too, and uh, moves into a larger role. And and I think bumps up against Maggie again. I can see yeah. her. She's she's got secrets, like he says, that you know are going to be dangerous for her. Yes. She's, and and so he said he's going to uh, watch out for her, not over her, but watch out for her. So. There's a bond between them that I think is going to potentially pop back up again. Something else will happen and draw the two of them together. And oh, watching, I love hearing that. I know. I, I, I agree with Kathy on this. Whenever he came back into the story, I was like, oh, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? I loved his character. Yeah. And at okay. first I thought he was very nondescript and I thought, well, that's all we're going to see. And then then as he just gradually kind of inserted himself in the investigation in her life, he kind of inserted himself with readers too. And, and when you say he says he's going to watch out for her, I think that has that double-edged thing going on because she has dangerous secrets that could be dangerous for her, but she might be a little dangerous herself, you know, depending on how her life goes from there. So obviously we're fascinated with it. Uh, did you, uh, I know they're always asking for comps. Did you have any particular comps that you felt like your book was a lot like? I have a question about one, but I'm not sure. Well, the funny thing is, um, yeah, they ask for these things. And I read everything, but I don't read very organized ways. So I'm reading science fiction, and then I'm reading a biography. And, and so when this book um, came out a few years ago, the where the crawdads right. saying, um, it, at this point, this book was already done and and you know, with the in the hands of a publisher, and I was like, "Wow, that really sounds like there are similarities there." I thought uh, the same thing. Yeah, and and uh, I still haven't read it. I'm a little afraid to because, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you always wonder. But I mean, this book was definitely started in you know 2008, so it's you know been in the works for a long time. But I thought, oh, people are going to think I ripped that off or something. No, no, they're very different. Um, the concept is similar. I'm not going to point out the differences, but they they that's why I was almost hesitant to say that if that ask if that was your comp because because um, yes, you're going to think similarities, but once you get into the book, there are some nature similarities. The woman who wrote it, I believe, a naturalist, uh, I think. I'm yes, that's that. naturalist. Yeah. Yes. And she'd written books like that. So there's a lot of similarity there and with the reverence for the land. But I also loved, and it's one of your questions too about Southern Gothic, there were times when that land was not appealing at all. The setting was oppressive and, you know, almost like you felt claustrophobic, which I think is very true of that kind of climate and that kind of teeming with all this life but sometimes it just feels like a big mud pit you know Kathy or, you know, did it I, remind you of when we had Emily Carpenter on uh yes. reviving the uh Hawk, well the um 
the Hawthorns. Loving sisters. the Hawthorn Thorn sisters Hot and sisters. burying the honeysuckle girls. Burying the Hawthorns. Yeah. Burying the honeysuckle yes. girls. Honeysuckle yeah. girls. That's yes. it. I'm thinking of the sequel. I know we're putting them together. Uh, yeah. Yes, because she does, she has the setting kind of takes on its own life. Mm -hmm. And most of the time for hers, I'd say it's pretty oppressive. Here, yes. I thought you went back and forth, forth with it. Uh, all of your delving into the living creatures in it, I think, made it um, have two two sides to it. It wasn't always that gothic sort of thing, but but it was definitely there, especially that at the cemetery, all that stuff. That was really cool that kids would go to a cemetery like that at night and that she didn't feel comfortable sitting on the tombstones during the day. It seemed disrespectful to do it during the day. It was fine at night. And for some <laughs> reason, that was perfectly logical to me. <laughs> and I think, yeah, the, the natural world is kind of realistic and healing for the most part, but it's the traces of human thing, things which are mostly gone. It's the graveyard, the old church that isn't used, the, the fallen implantation house, the, you know, the farm fields baking under the sun, that those things are very, that's the traditional sort of Flannery O'Connor territory of, you know, the, the, Christ haunted landscape and the the weight of history and things like that. So, and uh, and and this was draws on the area around Lake Carr where where I sailed. And so some of this is kind of based on that area, and then some of it's just made up, you know, like we do. But uh, there is an old church like that, which I was always fascinated with. That there was this ancient ancient church just sitting there on the side of the road, just kind of hemmed in by the road, and had to use that. And I like I love that observation that um, nature itself is is not what's scary and creeping you out. What's bothering you, and I love this, and I've never heard it stated like you just stated stated it, Val, is that what's scary, oppressive, and creeping you out is the human element. Is that humans have been there, inserted themselves into it and what's left of the crumbling human thing that was built there. That's when it gets scary. Nature is not there to scare you or hurt you. It's the crumbling human element, like you were saying, what humans left behind. That's when that's inserted in there, that's when it gets creepy. You know, and I've never thought of it that way before, but that's so true. The woods themselves aren't the problem. It's the humans who inserted themselves into it over the years. Yeah. And there are these, these traces like old wells and roads and fallen in railroad lines and things that are just, you know, it's sort of post-apocalyptic. These things are broken or gone, but they're still there in this weird way. It reminds of us, us of our mortality. Nature doesn't isn't concerned with mortality. So all those changes are just natural. But for us, thinking about our mortality and what we leave behind and what are we going to leave behind and that sort of thing, it, it's um, that's where I think the Southern Gothic or the Gothic horror doesn't have to be Southern uh, because yours was so warm and re just reeking with life. Um, it definitely fit into the Southern mode. Well, Kim, is there anything that we've missed? And then I want to give Val a chance to talk about anything we didn't ask her that she'd like for us to know. Got all mine out. Okay. But what did we miss that someone uh, picking up this book that you would really want them to know? Well, one thing that, that's been really interesting is that I didn't write it as a young adult. I just wrote it as a, a novel and didn't really think about 
genre uh, in, in that way. I was just thinking, this story has come to me, I'm going to tell it. And then when it came time to do the marketing, that's when it, it became YA. And I was on the fence about that because I thought, well, you know, is that going to limit it? But then I realized, you know, it actually expands because I think lots of adult readers read YA. And this is aimed at older YA. It's not younger. And it also lets it get into schools and school libraries in a way that other books wouldn't. So it's sort of like, okay, I get the best of both worlds. But I had to come to terms with that. And I taught um, school and supervised some student teachers and the middle grades were so into Hunger Games. Of course, adults read it too, but it was, it was interesting to me to listen to the discussions they had about death at a young age and the destruction of what they knew and whatever. And I, it would have, to me, it would have been like, I was like, can they handle that? I think they handle it better than I did. I mean, Maybe it's because they were a little that were they were less aware of how real it could be, but um, that that's the kind of thing that's tricky about YA and very interesting. And I don't know if you could classify where the crawdads sing as young adult. I it is it has a lot of that, but that that would be an interesting question. I don't think it's characterized that way, and I think yours fits that category as well as adult readers. Yeah, it's, it seems to be different books you see. Are, um, I read uh, Kelly Mustian's Girls in the Stilt House, and those girls are the same age as Maggie, but that was not treated as YA, and possibly because it was historical, which is another element. This is contemporary, so uh, that definitely works in there. Yeah, it's uh, as I said, this book, I didn't really plot it out. I had some high points. I knew some things, a lot of things I didn't know. But it was a big contrast to, to The Bones, which I wanted to play with genre very deliberately and, and have lots of different elements. And so I made it a very standard plot kind of uh, book and, and followed that arc because I wanted to have a really familiar structure. And this one I played a lot more. I've got all of these sort of the Linnaeus pieces and rumors from the community and things from the newspaper. and letters and so these things are kind of coming in and impinging on on her narrative and and helping build the overall story so it, it's a, a little different in that way uh, if we have any middle school teacher listeners out there it would be a very rich book to teach because it will have some appeal for kids who like scientific information or scientific texts and kids who um, are interested in a journalistic approach to things and just good readers. So I, I definitely like that part of it. Well, tell us where people can get your book and if there's any place you're gonna be appearing that you wanna make sure anybody in the neighborhood knows, tell us that before we tell you how much we appreciate you. Well, it's uh, available in all of the, the usual places. It's available at uh, independent bookstores. Uh, bookshop, which connects with independent bookstores. If you don't know Bookshop, do you know Bookshop? I think, yeah. 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 And I don't know if, if viewers will, but if you order through Bookshop, if you like to do online ordering, if you order through them, then local bookstores get a, a little cut. So you're kind of supporting that local bookstore. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm, I am going to be touring uh, a lot because I like it. I love to meet readers. I love to be out there. And so, uh, 
I have not yet got any dates in Georgia, but I'm looking. So, hey, if there's any book clubs out there, get in touch. <laughs> uh, and libraries, uh, schools, uh, bookstores. So I, I definitely am looking at three or four bookstores in Georgia and hoping to get in some book festivals because I, I like those. I'm going to be at Greensboro Bound here in a couple of weeks, which is a big festival here in Greensboro, North Carolina. And wonderful. It's free. Book festivals are great. If you haven't been to one, go because they're fantastic. And I'll be on a panel about mysteries of identity. And the other people are also dealing, I don't know, uh, John Copenhaver's uh, book, The Savage Ones. And that's uh, a young pair of women and their entanglements in these crimes. And uh, so it'll be really fun to talk about that with, with other authors. Uh, my website at valneman.com. You can check there for dates and locations. As, as I get them, I will add them on that site. And we will definitely let people know. And Val, it's been so great talking to you. The book, I think I finished the book. I finished it in about a day mm -hmm. I, 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 because it didn't even come out until the ninth, right? And, and I, wanted to, I, wanted to, I wanted to buy it. I, I got the Kindle one, but I wanted to have it. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to read pretty fast. Well, that was no problem at all. So I think that uh, if you're a reader of mysteries, young adults coming of age, a little bit, well, suspense, a little bit of psychological suspense, I think, yes. and beautiful, beautiful prose that reflects your poetic background. Um, you've got to check this out. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great being here. Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, keep writing and stay wild.